This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. This week, we bring you a story about Mark Benioff and, Carol, his gut of sorts. (laughs) That's how he makes uh, decisions. Also, what's interesting is a lot of the Democratic presidential hopefuls, well, you know, they talk a lot about inequalities, but interestingly enough, that's not stopping them from stopping by Wall Street for lunch and for some donations. And a geopolitical bromance. President Trump and leader Kim, they have professed their love to each other, but talks between the two countries not going so well. Plus, Business Week Talks featuring an exclusive interview with Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins. We talked about trade, we talked about Huawei, we talked about the outlook, and we talked about how he manages. But first, Carol, trade has been a major focus here in the U.S. and around the world. The U.S. seems to be fighting trade wars on multiple fronts, ensnared perhaps in the trade tango. We're talking about Spanish olives. See what I did there? It's a tango. It's a samba. It's something. It's a complicated dance for sure. Christina Lindblad here to talk a little bit about olives. Multiple fronts to this trade war. What's happening in Spain? Yeah, I think people forget that there are other countries besides China uh, ensnared in this this, uh, multiple front trade war. Well, I think that uh, in the U.S. for several, several years, uh, local olive growers have been complaining that Spain dumps olives below market price in the United States because it gets subsidies from the government and from the growers that get subsidies from Madrid and from the Euro- European Union. So when Trump came into office, they saw an opportunity to actually get this complaint you know, off the ground. And so now there's a 35% punitive tariff on Spanish processed olive imports into the United States. Well, and what I found so interesting about this story is it opens up and, you know, you go to Spain and you sort of hear about these olive farmers Mm -hmm. and, you know, their employees and how business is suffering. But then you come back to the United States and you see California, I I believe, uh, olive growers are like, yeah, good. Like, this is how this is how it should be. So you do start to understand there are multiple sides. There are really two sides uh, to this. How does this go from here? Well, like the China dispute, it's been quite intractable. And, you know, despite attempts by, you know, to in bilateral talks to resolve this, it hasn't worked out so far. So uh, Brussels, on behalf of Spain, has gone to the World Trade Organization to initiate a dispute. That hasn't moved either. So they're calling for a special panel to make a decision uh, this month. So we'll see um, if anything if anything happens. I mean, typically, the WTO is not a high-speed process. Right. So, so that can take a few uh, years, yeah, right? So, yeah, yeah and, some and of the worst I, news you can get is there's a panel. <laughs> We're going to take yeah. it to the WTO. There's a panel being Thanks assembled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, you know, t- this can remap already, yeah. you know, uh, the flow of... of the olive trade, you know? I have to say, I love when the magazine does stories like this, and I'm just going to throw out some statistics. So Spain has about a quarter of the global market for, I guess, black table olives, right? 20% of the exports went to the U.S. in 2017. So we're talking about a relationship that's really important, certainly for Spain in terms of um, an industry for them. What kind of impact have we seen on Spanish farmers as a result? Well, we went, we visited several farms in southern Spain, and there were job losses have already been quite sizable in one farm. Um, the guy there has only one quarter of the workforce that he had last year. It's a big cut. Um, and so basically now what, what people are expecting is that for the harvest this year, which is a, starts, I believe, around September, that, you know, there will be a repricing of contracts that, process, you know, so the fees that processing, you know, companies 
pay the farmers to take the olives and brine them and, you know, et cetera. But also there's some, been some interesting repercussions. Uh, one of the Spanish companies has bought a stake in a California company that was one of the two that brought the initial complaint. Uh, to, you know, so basically, so the idea is now that they're going to start, you know, shipping green olives because these olives start at green right. uh, to the U.S. and, you know, brining them here in order to try to evade the tariffs. Well, and one of the sort of p- potential workarounds, too, is, well, you start to use your olives for olive oil, but that's a lower margin mm-hmm. business. Yeah. And so this does have some complications on the supply chain. And it also reminds us that even if these trade disputes are eventually worked out, businesses have to make decisions right now around their employment, around their investment, around their potential market. And in south, in the southern Spain, you know, the unemployment rate is over twenty percent. Wow. So this is already, you know, a high level, and so this is adding to that and creating pressure. So what's going to happen? So I'm curious about, you know, what does the U.S. do? Like, where do they get their black table olives now? And what is Spain doing in terms of finding new new markets? I mean, are they already kind of shifting? Yeah. So we've heard a lot of the word decoupling when it comes to the U.S. and China, but other other countries and other sectors are starting to try to decouple from the U.S. too. So in Spain, the olive uh, industry is looking at markets in Asia. Well, China, yeah, you know, and Pakistan, and India to see if they can, you know, sort of like, you know, start to kind of ease this dependency they've had with the U.S. Well, and it's a reminder, and I know you guys look at this a lot in the economic section when it relates to trade. We talked to Sean Donnan down mm-hmm. in Washington about this a lot. I mean, this is a remapping of global trade in in many ways. And it's an important reminder, it feels like, that European countries and the EU overall is just as concerned with this maybe as China is. And and that's a front that we don't talk about uh, as much. We don't. But I think we'll be talking about it more. I mean, there's been this whole issue with auto tariffs and whether they're going to come on or not. And yeah, I I mean... but Trump hasn't targeted other people who are selling olives, right? I think that's right. Europe. No so, other so country. Really so you can still go Spain. get your Kalamata from Greece. <laughs> you can buy, you know, at the supermarket, Americans can buy olives from Morocco. Yeah. But it's a particular kind of olive. I mean, it's it's just like the, the ones that you find on these pizza toppings and salad bars, like when you go to fast casual restaurants. So right. there's not an easy substitution effect in the short term. And that's economics editor Christina Lindblad. Didn't see this story coming, no. I have to say. We talk about soybeans. Yeah. We talk about autos. But... IP, intellectual property, Absolutely. and a lot of other things. But, you know, here all of a sudden our radar was on the U.S. trade relationship with Spain specifically. And this has got some implications for both farmers here in the United States and also for farmers in Spain. One story found in the technology section of the magazine is on a music streaming service. However, it's not your usual suspect. Instead, Jason, it's one that's hoping to do for Bach and Mozart, what uh, Spotify and some others have done for Lady Gaga and Taylor Swift. Benedict Camel joins us from... Berlin. And I love this line in your story, Benny. It says, this company moves to a soundtrack that's more Yo-Yo Ma (laughs) than Yola Tango. Well done. Nice turn of phrase. So tell us about Idagio. So Idagio is a startup from Berlin. Uh, It's a music streaming company. And essentially, they are classical only. Uh, So none of your um, Dr. Dre, uh, none of your um, Phil Collins, whatever you might want in terms of sort of pop music uh, or rap or whatever. It's all classical music. And that's a very vast field. It goes all the way from 
Gregorian chants to uh, Philip Glass to contemporary classical music, um, but their ambition is to have the most complete catalogue out there for classical music only. And the reason they've done this is they say that um, Spotify, Apple, uh, some of the others out there um, are not very good at catering to a classic music audience. Uh, these people struggle to find their things on uh, platforms like Spotify, and Idajo came along and said, we can do better than that. Well, tell us the individual behind it. I think he's one of the co-founders. I mean, he knows something about this business. He spent, what, a couple of decades managing classical musicians, and he understands it's a little bit different when you want to catalog it and kind of reach out to consumers. Yes, that's absolutely right. So Tilian Chukovic is the co-founder of this company, and he's sort of uh, deeply rooted in the classical music industry. He spent two decades uh, doing what's sort of called artists and repertoire, so sort of looking after artists, organizing classical music festivals. And he came to a point sort of around 2010, 12, uh, where he found that uh, it was really difficult to reach a target audience with classical music. You have these sort of standard channels, which is through uh, sales of uh, CDs, for instance, or through classical concerts, but that wasn't really a dedicated and good platform to reach a target audience uh, through streaming. Um, so what he did, uh, he found uh, a co-founder, a co-investor for him, as a chap who'd uh, created a uh, another digital music platform, uh, so he knew all about sort of the technical backbone. Till had uh, the the knowledge of the industry. Till actually sold his flat here in Berlin. He told me sort of one night he was standing at the roaring fireplace of his flat and decided, okay, which way do I go? Do I take the risk? sell everything I have and go sort of uh, into the deep end or do I stay in my sort of fairly comfortable job that I have now and he decided let's go full throttle full risk he founded Idajo in around 2015 and it's up and running now and claims to have the most complete catalog of classical music out there well, and let's be honest, uh, to extend your metaphor a bit, in that deep end, there's a whale and it's called Spotify. I mean, an mm -hmm. extremely successful. Uh, what do you give in terms of chances for this minnow, as it were, uh, competing against Spotify? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. If you look at sort of the, the industry as it exists, they only have a tiny sliver of this, uh, this cake. But if you talk to Till, he says, look, I don't need... Uh, you know, 100 million paid customers. Obviously, I'd love to have them, but the truth is classical music only accounts for about 5% of revenue in the entire uh, music universe. So if we can get that part of the market, we're totally happy. We don't need 100 million. If we can get north of 1, 2, 3 million or so and can sort of consolidate that part of the market, and if we can create a valuable proposition for users in that particular space, then great, that's all we need. You know, there's something to be said about the, the typical classical music user. They're very, very loyal people. They're often fairly affluent people. They're people who aren't as fickle maybe as, you know, you and I, who will sort of jump from one platform to the next. Um, once you give them something that they like and that they can see value in, um, then they'll probably stick with you. The issue is, can you move them away from their vast CD collection, which they've probably in, sort of built up over decades, and say, all right, out with the CDs, 
in with streaming. It's a bit like saying, all right, you don't need books anymore. It's all on your iPad. You know, that's also difficult for a lot of people to right. stomach. Hey, Benedict, you know, we've seen the stories about, right, streaming services, music streaming services, not always making a ton of money here. So how about this one? I mean, have they given us any idea uh, about downloads, the amount of subscribers they have? Because I know they charge, I guess, a monthly fee, almost 10 bucks for full access. But, I mean, are they making money? Are they doing well? They're not making money yet. So uh, Till owns a chunk of the company with his uh, co-founder, uh, Macquarie, uh, the Australian bank. They own another stake, and there's an, uh, two or three others in there. Um, so far, they're still very much in the startup phase, uh, so they're not making money yet. Um, but he said, look, we've, we're on a good path. Uh, our investors are happy. They have more than a million downloads uh, of the app. Um, there's a sort of free model where you can test it for a couple of weeks, and you can extend it. And then there's also a a paid uh, model, which, as you say, is sort of the, the standard fee of nine ninety nine, and for that, you know, as he says, you get sort of the the vast universe of classical music out there. It's delivered in lossless quality, uh, so it's sort of CD like, and that's again important for a lot of classical music buffs. Um, so he says uh, we're happy where we are. He doesn't have an exit strategy as such. I asked him, look, is your plan eventually to get gobbled up by the likes of Spotify um, or Apple? And he said, you know what? I haven't really thought about this. For the time being, I want to build a business. I want to sort of get closer to the end consumer. Um, and, and we're on a good way here. So um, time will tell. Well, and it's interesting, too. It sounds like the, the cataloging, to Carol's earlier point, is a little bit different because unlike pop music where, you know, there might be someone else who's covered somebody else's song, you have a lot of pieces of music that are mm -hmm. performed by different symphonies at different times with a different soloist and all different arrangements and, and whatnot. So I would imagine the interface, which also includes, uh, it sounds like you can select by mood, uh, is a little <laughs> bit different than maybe we would uh, get used to seeing with the Spotify or an Apple Music. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, the, the chief complexity with classical music is that it has so many different metrics that people will look for. If you're, you know, like me, a kid of the 80s, and you get onto Spotify, you're like, okay, I want to listen to Phil Collins, all right? So it's artist, song, album. That's about as complicated as your search will get. You know? um, and then, you know, the party's on. But if you're looking for classical music and you say, I want to listen to Mozart's Magic Flute, Okay, who am I looking for? Is Mozart the artist or is the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra? Are they the artist or is it the conductor I'm looking for? Is it a soloist I'm looking for? So there's very right. different ways of looking for uh, what, you're, what you really are after. That's Benedict Camel joining us from Berlin on Idagio, right? And we talk a lot about music streaming services, but this is a different niche in terms of the music world, a little bit of uh, nuances in terms of how you catalog it, and that's what Idagio is trying to uh, capitalize on. So a story that we've talked about before in the magazine, how China's extending its influence, Jason, really around the world through investments. And especially into big infrastructure mm -hmm. projects. We've seen it in Africa, and now we're seeing it in Argentina. Jonathan Gilbert joins us from... From that country. So tell us what is going on. So Argentina's in a very difficult situation at the moment. There's a financial crisis, essentially, a country that can't access debt markets because of a problem going back about 18 months when there's a huge sell-off of Argentine securities. The peso, the Argentine peso, um, bonds and uh, the stock market too. So Argentina's locked out of credit markets, essentially. Um, and the current president, um, Mauricio Macri, he wanted to sort of stave off the advance of China into the country when he first came to power in December 2015, but 
you know, when you're locked out of credit markets and you need to get infrastructure going in your country, you know, China is basically the only option. So I was recently in Santa Cruz province. It's a province way down south in Patagonia where China is building uh, $4 billion worth of um, hydroelectric dams. Well, and what's interesting, tell us about that dam, right? Uh, it's a twin dam project. It's being built there, but there's a lot of things that might make you scratch your head to say, why is this happening? Walk us through that. Yeah, so the, the trend in the world is for more renewable energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know about um, climate change and the, the global effort to push renewable energy and also um natural gas as a transition fuel which is cleaner than than coal and and other types of fossil fuels Um, but hydro is on the way out slightly well more than slightly Um, it only grew 0.5% in 2017 whereas solar and offshore wind grew between 30 and 40% and the problem with hydro is you're damming huge areas of uh, pristine landscapes affecting communities affecting wildlife Um, so the tendency has been to move away from those and um, because of the environmental and community effects that they have. So China built the Three Gorges Dam in the 1990s and in the 2000s. So they have a lot of power to harness in terms of using that expertise in other countries. And in Argentina, that's the case. They're building two huge dams. It's 1.3 gigawatts of power, um, which will be about 5% of Argentina's total um, energy generation. Um, so even though these are sort of outdated dinosaurs, they serve China's need to push into emerging market nations like Argentina and use their expertise. Well, and Jonathan, that raises is a really interesting point too about where China is in terms of their ambition. You know, part of this push into emerging markets and into Latin America specifically has to do with the Belt and Road Initiative. This is really the cornerstone of President Xi's ambition for himself and and for his country. How does this fit into that larger picture? Yeah, I think it's well known the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, trillions of dollars. Um, reportedly um, have gone into that uh, initiative. And in Argentina, um, and more broadly in Latin America, I mean, you look at the, the funding of, of energy infrastructure. I think in other countries, we're talking more about road, rail uh, infrastructure. In, in Latin America, we're looking more at energy infrastructure. We're looking at maybe $65 billion of investment from China in Latin America over the past decade or so. I mean, if you compare that to the World Bank as sort of the, the Western benchmark for, for um, financing these types of projects, you're looking at six times as much from China compared to the World Bank, um, mainly in Brazil, but also now in Argentina, where you have the two dams that, I've, that we're talking about, but also the potential to, for an $8 billion um, nuclear plant. So you're seeing, Argent, you're seeing China start to move away from maybe Asia and Africa and into Latin America, where... Basically, um, the big gain it gets from Latin America is access to uh, crops. It needs the crops mm-hmm. to mainly soybeans to feed huge pig herds, which is um, the main source of protein for the Chinese population. What I think is fascinating about this story, right, and you say this in the beginning, is that the Argentine president at one point was looking to really kind of pull the plug on these Chinese projects, but he's really kind of changed his tune because he's had to, Correct. Yeah, I think so. I think the previous government um, under the presidency of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, it was a populist, leftist, anti-US, anti-international monetary fund, um, anti, um, anti-Western 
diplomacy type figure. She snuggled up to Russia and she snuggled up to China. And when the new president came in, Mauricio Macri, who's facing elections later this year, um, he sort of revised several contracts that were signed with Russia and revised several contracts that were signed with China in an effort to move Argentina away from that axis and more towards the US. He snuggled up to President Trump and to others. Um, I think the crisis that Argentina is in at the moment, which is, a, which is affecting the economy, the economy is shrinking, there's very little investment, there's no access to credit because the bond yields are so high, has meant that Mauricio Macri, the president, has had to turn back to China and to say, listen, we need you guys. That's Jonathan Gilbert joining us from Buenos Aires. And Carol, we've talked a lot about China, its political might, its economic might. Infrastructure is a place it's really playing out. Well, and it's currently in the grips of a financial crisis. It's really bad. And that sometimes leads, especially an emerging, developing economy, to partner with folks they might not otherwise. And that's what really what this story is about. If you talk about revered tech companies, you often talk about Salesforce and its chairman, co-CEO and co-founder, Mark Benioff. Definitely a force. The question is, though, can he keep it up? Well, that's a big question. The other question is, why does he do the things he do? (laughs) Nico Grant joins us from San Francisco. And the headline sort of says it all. Trust his gut. Nico, help us understand the mind, if you can, of Mark Benioff. Well, thank you for having me. Mark Benioff is one of the most eccentric figures in Silicon Valley. He's this, you know, man who founded this company called Salesforce. It makes this uh, sales tracking software and has expanded from there uh, for sales reps uh, across the world at this point. But he, you know, has grown this company in this super unconventional way. There are lots of companies, particularly, you know, companies that include some of his competitors. Oracle, SAP, companies that are more mature, Uh, to some extent even Adobe, that will have a bit more of a roadmap in terms of the way that they buy other companies, for instance, the way that they expand. They'll be very deliberative in terms of what do we want to do next. And Mark Benioff, being this, you know, sort of seen as very visionary cloud leader, um, he actually has a different method. He essentially decides you know, sometimes on the spot, what his company is going to do next. Um, And so there are these really interesting uh, times, for instance, when he bought this company called Steelbrick, he asked the executives and the CEO of that company to come over to his house in San Francisco. They were in this boardroom that Benioff had built overlooking the, the water, the bay and the ocean. And he, you know, sort of asked questions for 20 minutes. Then he asked for a demo. Uh, he, you know, asked them to skip the things he wasn't interested in. And at the end of it, he said, I want to buy your company. Um, and, you know, that type of story isn't singular. There, uh, across Silicon Valley, there are all types of stories of Benioff meeting with CEOs, seeing a demo, and basically falling in love with the person and and also the the company, the product, and what it could do for Salesforce. Well, and Nico, told, well, wait, and Nico, sometimes it works out, right? His gut is spot on, sometimes not so much. Yeah. So, you know, he has a track record that is mixed, but we are in this bull market and we are also in this age in which a lot of companies around the world are getting rid of their old IT systems and they're buying cloud products. And so many of the mistakes that he's made have been, you know, sort of concealed by the bull market that we're in. Um, you know, definitely large acquisitions he did, such as Exact Target, Demandware, to some extent MuleSoft, which happened only one year ago. 
show um, were have been successful. They've grown to Salesforce's revenue. They've put Salesforce in different parts of the IT market and cloud market uh, from where it had been. But there have also been you know many deals that didn't happen, and oftentimes they're because of Mark's very mercurial uh, personality. There was one point in which he wanted Salesforce to be a big player in social media. I mean, even now, Salesforce has this internal uh, service that it uses uh, called Chatter that's sort of a workplace Hmm. social network. Um, Think of it like a mix of Slack and Facebook for the office. It's not necessarily very popular uh, among other businesses, but he wanted to, you know, take it a step further. And so he looked at buying LinkedIn a few years ago uh, when LinkedIn had hired bankers and was basically quietly going around saying we're up for sale. Um, And in that experience, you know, we have reporting uh, that Mark told, Mark Benioff told uh, his friend and also, um, you know, an employee at at Arrival, uh, the chairman of Microsoft, John Thompson, that he was interested in LinkedIn. And then Microsoft ended up buying LinkedIn. um, And Benioff had personally emailed the CEO and the the co-founder of LinkedIn uh, saying basically, oh, we would would really like um, to, you know, sort of get LinkedIn and make part of the Salesforce family. And also, you know, here's our bid. And then he increased the bid. And in the end, he would have paid more for LinkedIn than Microsoft ended up paying. Now, you know, Microsoft says that it was always interested in LinkedIn in the first place, and so it didn't do anything underhanded in this scenario. But, you know, the loss of LinkedIn meant that Benioff wanted to buy Twitter just a few months later. And that was really stepping away from the focus of what his company is all about. Well, uh, and you know, this is a consumer brand. Right. And Nico, before we get too far away from Microsoft, I want to stay there for a second because it feels like there you have the nexus to some extent of Benioff, the up-and-comer, the big visionary, and then, you know, arguably one of the most important and now resurgent incumbent players in technology. The Salesforce-Microsoft relationship is complicated, to say the least, certainly uh, by virtue of that LinkedIn transaction, but also in a broader sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very nuanced relationship. Early employees of Benioff said to me that from the start, Benioff was, you know, sort of fascinated by companies like Microsoft and other companies that are quite large, Oracle, where he used to work. You know, in some sense, he wanted to be uh, a Microsoft and he wanted his company to emerge and be that strong in, in technology. In other ways, he had a certain level of resentment for uh, the way those companies operated and wanted also the respect of those companies and those executives. Early on, there was a, 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 an opportunity in which Microsoft, when Steve Ballmer ran the company, was interested, was said to be interested in buying Salesforce. That ended up not happening and they bought a different company instead. But more recently, in 2015, This is after Satya Nadella uh, emerged as the CEO in 2014. 
Microsoft and Salesforce were in negotiations about an acquisition. Right. Uh, Salesforce wanted more money than Microsoft was willing to pay. Uh, and, you know, Benioff was interested in having a very big title at, at Microsoft. You know, he wanted that sort of validation and respect uh, from the company. It ended up falling apart. And then just the next year, uh, when the LinkedIn misadventure happened for Benioff, you know, his close relationship with Nadella, whom he saw as this visionary, as this really fascinating and inspirational figure, uh, really soured at that point. And, you know, there are some folks who, who said that Benioff probably expected that because uh, Nadella is this is viewed as this sort of softer, gentler personality versus Bomber, who is very boisterous. Right. Um, you know, he could be sort of uh, a pushover. And, uh, and Nadella was, was very deft uh, in getting LinkedIn. And, you Nico, know, Benioff Nico, was what, really upset after that. One thing, though, in, in that deal that, you know, the potential for Salesforce to be sold to Microsoft, right? That deal didn't quite happen. But I think one of the concerns, too, was, you know, what I guess Benioff wanted to be on the board. And there's like a fun story in there about uh, a board that Benioff was part of and how he would kind of, was it video conference into the meetings? Tell us a little bit about this. From his elliptical in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's no secret that Benioff is this huge fan of Hawaii. It's something that that we talk about in the story. And so back in uh, 2012, he was on the Cisco board. Um, and he stayed there for only a couple of years uh, before he stood down. Uh, and part of the reason why is because he would teleconference into the board meetings and he would be in Hawaii. He might have a tank top on or a shirt on the wrong way. He'd be exercising. He'd be on an elliptical or a treadmill and multitasking. Uh, it's something that, you know, Cisco uh, still remembers. And I must have unnerved the board members the- a little bit. Right. Right. I mean, you know, Cisco, as you can imagine, being uh, th- this massive uh, networking company that's that's been around for decades, has a board that was full of corporate retirees. So folks who, you know, used to be operators and now are just professional board members, they may have three or four or five board seats and they collect that money and they collect that stock. Uh, and it sort of scandalized those folks. But Benioff also uh, had moments when he clashed with a friend of his uh, whom also uh, who also has a house in Hawaii. John Chambers, the then CEO of Cisco. And he would tell Chambers, you know, this is what you should do. You want to become a cloud company. He was very prescriptive. Chambers yeah. was was used to having a very passive board. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they they asked Benioff uh, not to not to stand for re-election, But Benioff at that point knew that it wasn't a good culture fit. So just quickly, just got about 30 seconds left here. The takeaway from this story and what investors who are going to be listening to it, watching this story, reading about this story. I I think the takeaway is the process. You know, as Salesforce becomes a bigger and bigger company, and as more and more investors, you know, pile in, it's now worth $120 billion or so, uh, you know, I think the question of controls and process becomes more important. And also the question of sustainability. You know, Benioff, he's only in his 50s, and so presumably he's not going anywhere anytime soon, but he has lots of other interests. He hired a co-CEO to share the burden with last year. And can Salesforce continue to grow in this really unusual way for its size if the person who's, you know, making some of those key decisions about what to do next um, has such an unconventional style? You know, what happens when his winning record, uh, you know, goes the other way? 
That's Nico Grant joining us from San Francisco. Mark Benioff, we all talk about him. He's really well-known within the Silicon Valley community, really in the tech community overall, but how he makes decisions. Who knew that sometimes they could be very random and surprising to his team as well as outsiders? Yeah, you never know what you're going to get, that's for sure. Well, this love affair, as the President of the United States has described it, has really made the whole relationship the whole geopolitical relationship, a little more complicated. Jillian Goodman joins us from the nation's capital. She oversees, of course, the politics section for the magazine. So tell us how this relationship has evolved. If this were Facebook, we'd say it's complicated, right? (laughs) We certainly would. Uh, So they had this historic sit down, of course, uh, last year in Singapore, after which both sides were fairly effusive about the relationship Trump proclaimed claiming on Twitter uh, that they had fallen in love that and that nuclear, uh, excuse me, that North Korea was, of course, no longer a nuclear threat. But then in, in Hanoi in February, we saw the collapse of those talks. And so now that that both of them have decided that they were so close and spoken so publicly about how close they were, they've kind of left themselves without a clear avenue to get what they want without losing face. Well, that's the whole point. I felt like there was a line in the story about how the two have to walk kind of a delicate line to do exactly like that that save face and avoid a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that at this point, but it's tricky, correct? Yes, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un desperately needs economic aid. Mm -hmm. Uh, North Korea's harvest last year was catastrophic. We're talking about widespread hunger in the country. And so that does, he's a, you know, an all-powerful political figure, but that does come with some risk to him. Uh, So he desperately wants economic aid, but he won't get that from the Trump administration without giving up his nuclear weapons, which he also doesn't want to do. And so without that, and that's sort of where the stalemate came from in February, is is the definition of what denuclearizing means, uh, and the Trump administration just wasn't willing to agree to what North Korea was willing to offer. Well, and Jillian, it's an interesting insight into the U.S. administration, especially Mm -hmm. because it feels like you have the president who obviously is in charge at the end of the day, the decider to use uh, the argot of one of his predecessors. But you also have his administration, which is trying to keep these negotiations going on. And sometimes, and this is not the first time we've seen this with this administration, those parties seem to be a little bit at odds. How is this administration sort of balancing that? It's been a tough sort of balancing game, as you say. I mean, on the one hand, like Trump has really taken on the role of being the person that's going to fix this relationship, of being the person who's going to negotiate sort of one on one with Kim. And as that has fallen apart, I mean, you saw Steve Began, the uh, nuclear negotiator, the North Korean negotiator, was actually in South Korea when those uh, during one of the missile tests that sort of prompted this latest uh, bout of tensions. And so it it is a pretty uh, bold move for them to, for North Korea, that is, to be testing missiles while the U.S. negotiator is so close, in fact, within range of some of those missiles that they tested. But it's kind of fascinating. And I think this point that the two initially did direct negotiations, right, it was really those two individuals, Kim Jong-un and President Trump, you know, figuring things out that kind of made it much more complicated and kind of got us to where we are to some extent today that makes the negotiations now even trickier and tougher. Exactly, yeah. But neither leader wants to look like not a leader Mm -hmm. by backing down.
Well, and with President Trump, and we've seen this in a number of different cases, and this is a stylistic thing, if nothing else, where he wants to go one-on-one with world leaders, whether it is Vladimir Putin in the case of the Helsinki summit, whether it is Kim Jong-un, as you've described, even with other world leaders, some allies, some uh, traditional foes. How much does this just tell us about this is how this president rolls? I mean, a lot. You know, he's he's famously that way in his businesses as well. But really what we're seeing with this relationship with North Korea is that this is why we have diplomats who negotiate the details before the two leaders get into the room so that everybody knows what's going to happen so that you don't walk into a situation like we had in Hanoi, where there are so many unknowns and there's still so much work to do between the two leaders that no one's really sure what's going to come out of it. Right. There's typically usually a lot of choreography that has all been laid out and then we just kind of get to see it all fall into place and follow the script or the plan. And that's not exactly what we saw here. Tell me a little bit about uh, South Korea and their role in all of this because they're in a very tricky position, right? An ally certainly of the United States, but they also, because they are certainly within range of those nuclear weapons from North Korea, uh, they're in a tricky place as well. Exactly. And there's been a lot of progress made, of course, in the relationship between the North and the South. Mm -hmm. A lot of work that um, Moon Jae-in did before we even got to the Singapore summit last year. And so he, on the one hand, doesn't want to alienate the U.S., but also doesn't want to risk the sort of fragile peace that he's built with Kim. And so, you know, South Korea is providing food aid through the U.N.'s World Food Program and is hoping that that will sort of loosen loosen things up and lead to a third summit. but the U.S. hasn't really budged on that. That's Jillian Goodman. And I really liked this story because the nuances of personal relationships and Mm -hmm. personal relationships writ large, that is a cornerstone of this administration. Right. And that personal relationship, though, can complicate what really is a geopolitical relationship, right? And both leaders right now walking a fine line, right? They're both trying to save face. They want to avoid a nuclear war. It'll be interesting to see how they ultimately get this done. So presidential hopefuls have often made special interest groups such as Wall Street a target. We're seeing that again this time around among the Democrats. And yet at the same time, Wall Street continues to be a deep well for many of those candidates. I'm going to say this straight up. This is one of my favorite topics written mm. by one of my favorite reporters, Max Abelson, Aww, love Max. with us. I, this is so fascinating. This is where presidential politics gets the most interesting <laughs> because it is the nexus of money and power. Well, straight up. You said that beautifully. And I don't even mean when you said that I was one of your favorites. <laughs> uh, no, I know exactly true, what you mean when true. you say this is one of the best subjects. I mean, I feel like that what we're good at here in general as a newsroom at Bloomberg News is, is you know, writing about capitalism, sort of a big, long chronicle of capitalism. And you can't really understand the way financial capitalism works in 2019 without looking at that very sweet spot where American politics or global politics and Wall Street in particular sort of come together. And they're definitely coming together right now. It's just so interesting because inequality is such a big theme or will be a big theme of this presidential election season come 2020. We're already seeing it in the candidates. At the same time, in this magazine, there is a story also about those inequalities and what needs to be done in terms of tapping into money and so on and so forth. And yet here you find those Democratic candidates, right? They're saying, well, we got to work on this inequalities. And yet, they're going to Wall Street for money. Yes, I'm so glad that my story is a companion. I don't piece know if that, that made sense. That was a long way to sense. get there. It made sense. <laughs> I liked it. I'm I'm glad that my story is a companion piece to something on inequality because. <laughs> 
you know, if you just happen to tune in to like a minute of the uh, primaries or they haven't started yet, but the, the, the competition among Democratic rivals to try to be uh, to, to try like and fight Donald town Trump. Halls and things. Yeah, exactly. If you tune into a random minute, you'll probably hear things like Pete Buttigieg say, I'm giving back the money that lobbyists gave me. You might right. hear Joe Biden say, I'm rejecting the super PAC system. You might hear Beto or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris say, you know, corporate PAC money is not welcome here. Corporation money. Corporate PAC. Yes. That's when, you know, the Goldman Sachs Political Action Committee will bundle checks from individual uh, Goldman Sachs folks and then give give it over to a candidate. The Democrat candidates are saying we're going to reject that. What this story is about, though. It's how behind the scenes, Wall Street donors are being wooed just as much as ever by the Democratic nominees. Well, and let's go back a little ways because I feel like, and you know this better than anyone, Max, over the last 15 or 20 years, we have seen Wall Street become much more bipartisan in Mm -hmm. its giving. They really kind of fell in love with Barack Obama. Bill Clinton Mm -hmm. before that. And so you had Wall Street, which traditionally had been, generally speaking, sort of a bastion of Republican politics, really start to embrace more of the Democratic Party. And the names that you just said have been hands out to private equity, hedge fund, Wall Street people. What are the implications of that for the politics of Wall Street and the politics ultimately of regulation and oversight. Well, I think going back in time is a really smart idea. You know, basically what connects Clinton and Obama and Mitt Romney and John McCain is a certain kind of centrism, an idea that what Wall Street people really want is they don't want to be taxed too much. They don't want to be re- regulated too much. They probably are a little sympathetic to things like gay rights. And that leaves them at a place um, that might be a little nerve wracking because right now you've got, you know, Biden and other centrists looking like they're sort of not not of a a moment. And that moment is much more progressive. You've got Elizabeth Warren Warren proposing to literally jail bankers and executives Mm -hmm. um, whose negligence causes harm. She she is not meeting with the folks on Wall Street. So Very hear. important point. Very important point. Our donors told us that uh, the donors that we spoke to told us that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the sole exception to the rule. That means, though, that the centrists, the sort of Wall Street um, friendly candidates are having to do two things at once. On the one hand, they're kind of echoing the sort of in vogue progressivism of the Democratic Party. But on the other hand, what the story is about is how they're dropping by, you know, a banker's office for lunches. They're having fundraisers that raise $100,000. They're getting on the phone. They're making plans. Both of well, these things are happening together. You have to detail, though, some of the pe- folks on Wall Street that you talk to and how many different Democrats that they've either had a lunch with or a drink with. Just go sure. through it. Well, guess what? The answer is all of them. So, for example, you have the former Evercore vice chairman, Charles Myers, really interesting guy. He likes to have these things he calls policy lunches. So Pete Buttigieg comes by, talks policy. It's what, it has a sort of anti-socialist tinge, if you know what I mean. He's, he's really trying hard to pull the Democrats to the center. You've got uh, Kamala Harris shaking the hand of a puppy, I think is the, in the opening paragraph of our story, <laughs> at, a, at the home of a managing director from Citigroup, the big bank on yeah. Fifth Avenue uh, around Museum Mile. Then you have Amy Klobuchar going to the home of the former Canadian ambassador, Bruce Heyman. He was a Big, big, re- smart Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. guy. And Bruce is planning a fundraiser for Joe Biden. And and you know what? 
we could sit here and keep going down the list because right. Mark Lazary, the hedge fund billionaire, I think has met with like, or, or is going to meet with maybe 10 of these folks. Right. Yeah. Bob Wolf, I think he says he's going to meet with 15 of them. So the answer truly is that except for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, Wall Street and the Democrats are as, as friendly as ever. And everybody's open for business to some extent because, as you say, Wall Street is trying to find a candidate that probably isn't as extreme as Donald Trump, who many of them ultimately got behind, maybe reluctantly, maybe not. Uh, and in the case of Barack Obama, they got behind at sometimes reluctantly, and maybe he didn't pay off, literally and figuratively, in the way uh, that they wanted – and they were burned a little bit, many of them, by Hillary Clinton because they were ultimately what was part of her undoing. This is a very rare opportunity for me to be able to correct Jason Kelly, which never happens, <laughs> only in a very specific sense, which is that a lot of Wall Street, it's really important to remember – really likes Donald Trump. You yeah, know, they don't point. like they don't right. like Donald Trump's like jawboning and sort of chaos. But last week, I mean just a couple of days ago, Howard yeah. Lutnick, the head of Cantor Fitzgerald. Yes. Great point. He has a three-floor apartment, a triplex penthouse uh, here in Manhattan. They raised, I think, more than $5 million That's for right. Donald yeah, Trump. A lot of money. Two days earlier, a guy who's on a board of a big New Orleans bank raised, I think, like $4 million. So don't forget that what we're talking about here is happening on the both both sides. Yeah. We've got all the Democrats, almost all the Democrats are, are saying, you know, come, come here to the Wall Street cash. Donald Trump. Just as much. Well, it also speaks to it's expensive to run a campaign. And even though a lot of the Democrats in particular are saying we're going to do grassroots, I mean, even Donald Trump, right, has talked about grassroots to some extent. It's still expensive, ultimately, to do a presidential campaign. You know, I, I was looking at the numbers. It's sort of it's just remarkable. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton in her failed attempt, you know, more than a decade ago for the Democratic nomination. Yeah. So we're talking 2008. Right. I think by the time she lost to Obama, she had raised and spent hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't even in the main fight. That's Max Abelson. And I love how he took us down to Wall Street and talked with a lot of folks in the financial community about the lunches that they've been having with a lot of the Democratic presidential hopefuls. Well, it's a reminder that money really does make the political machine mm -hmm. hum. And it's no different this time around. A lot of people asking for money and a lot of Democrats this time. So, Jason. Yes. You've heard, of course, of Hollywood, home of U.S. filmmaking. Heard and then, of it. Then, of course, there's Bollywood, uh, India's film community. Have you heard of Nollywood? I confess I hadn't until I read Cameron Leach's story. It is a terrific one in the business section this week. Cameron, take us there. What's going on? This is a massive film production yeah. ecosystem. Just a, you know, when first time when you, first off, when you first think about Africa, people forget how vast and how large the continent is. You know, there's about 1.2 billion people in Africa and, and in Nigeria, which kind of runs Nollywood and the film community in Africa. There's 190 million people there. So when you talk about Nollywood, this is the place, the epicenter, you know, coupled with South Africa also, that's really driving entertainment in that region. So how big is it? Nollywood is such a huge industry. It follows Bollywood. It's the second the second largest industry when it comes to producing films as far as output. So that is something that, you know, Hollywood can really tap into when they're looking for that next growth driver when it, when it comes to entertainment. Well, and we are in an interesting moment, it feels like, in the global entertainment realm. Movies are global by their very nature. You think about The Avengers. You think about Black Panther. Of course. The audience is much different than it was 
20 years ago in terms of who's going and candidly what they expect to see uh, on the screen. Feels like Nollywood is in a good way taking advantage of that. I agree. And you know, most of this comes down to streaming. You have to really thank Netflix for really driving the business here, especially they're the first ones to really go into to Africa, go into Nigeria, and you know, pick up some local content. And you know, in, in 2015, they really got their hands dirty with uh, Beasts of No Nation. That featured Idris Elba, one of the, the major premier actors out across the U.S., even in the U.K. as well. And so you see a film like Beasts of No Nation that really got a lot of uh, good commentary, critically acclaimed uh, across, you know, Hollywood. Well, I think about all the streaming services, whether it's a Netflix or an Amazon, they've got to be kind of salivating a little bit, right? Because Mm -hmm. they are looking for growth opportunities. They're looking at other markets outside the United States. They're looking at emerging markets. And here is, and they're all fighting for new content, right? And here's a whole world of content for them. And what's interesting is your story, you actually start talking about uh, a premiere of something called Chief Daddy, right? And it got off to a strong start, but tell us about why it had a longer economic life cycle. Chief Daddy did so well in Nigeria. When it first debuted in in late 2018, it really took over theaters in in Nigeria. Now, granted, uh, Nigeria doesn't have the most uh, theaters out there, but now as the the industry is moving away from theaters and more towards streaming, they had a second life run when it came to Netflix. So Netflix picked up Chief Daddy for another run. They, They They acquired the worldwide rights to uh, Chief Daddy. Right. And now it's just taking a leg of his own. So talk about theaters. We talk about streaming. One of the reasons streaming has been good, as I understand your story, is that it's eliminated or or maybe helped mitigate one of the real problems in this industry, in Nigeria specifically, and maybe across the continent, which was piracy. Yes. That really put a dent in the ability to make money off movies. You know, what's, what's really interesting about uh, Nollywood in itself is the infrastructure that they really have a problem with. Uh, they really want backing from the government. And when it comes to being able to give them pre-financing dollars, when it comes to uh, giving out grants to creators, they really need that that push, that, that launch pad to really get their films across the board. And, you know, as the industry moves away from, uh, I guess, DVDs and more towards streaming, you're seeing less of piracy and more opportunity when it comes to the life of internet. Because as I understand it, what would happen is it would be hard for a film to get financing because they would know, all right, it's going to open up in theaters, <laughs> yeah. but literally within a day. The next day. The next literally. day, it's they're going to be DVDs sold on the street. And so nobody's going to go to right. the movies exactly. because they're going to watch it at home. Yeah. Who wants you? Do you want your hard work bootleg like that? Jason, what if you had another, uh, another Jason on a another network you don't want that I, I can't even imagine. I mean, there's I mean, the, only one great Jason. in the world. I mean, how many? You know, I, the world could use there's infinite Jasons, one. I think. But no, I take your point. It's fair. No, but the point is right. So if you have a streaming service who says, "Hey, we want the worldwide or global distribution rights," right? Automatically, you get a revenue stream right off the bat, right? And you kind of mitigate the impact of piracy. Yep, and it's not like Nollywood is asking for help. They have a handout. They want to. Uh, they want to meet Hollywood halfway, you know, because Hollywood also needs to expand. Disney needs to expand. Netflix needs to continue expanding. Right. So there is a way for them to have a partnership here for them both to benefit. And Netflix is really ramping up its efforts, right, in terms of uh, African production rights. African production rights, India production rights. They're really trying to 
keep up that international growth drivers beyond the U.S. That's Cameron Leach. And Carol, I have to say, I did not know a lot about Nollywood, the Nigerian-powered film industry, the opportunities that it has there in that country across the continent and the ambitions for some of the big global players. I mean, Nollywood, second largest producer of films in the world. Who knew just behind Bollywood in India? Big industry. And we really got uh, the lowdown from Cameron. And this week, we got a chance to catch up with Chuck Robbins, the Cisco chairman and CEO. So much to get into, very much in the news. So we got to talk a little bit about trade, a little bit about tariffs, what his customers are saying. Right. And we also talked about, of course, about Huawei and what it means in terms of the U.S. ban on the company. Does it provide opportunities for the company? What does it mean to the rollout of 5G? Also got a little bit inside the company, his management style, what he worries about, even what he might be doing (laughs) if he weren't leading this big company here. Chuck. So great to have you here with us. It's great to be here. We got to talk about stuff in the news, and I know you've been talking a lot about it. Uh, the U.S.-China trade deal. You guys said on your earnings call that you have taken moves to kind of deal with those 25% uh, tariff increases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, about eight months ago when all this began, uh, our teams proactively started thinking about, it, and we actually made the statement that we're going to we have three you know parts of our strategy around this. One, we're going to continue to dialogue with the administration to try to influence the outcome. Secondly, we're going to optimize our supply chain because we have a globally distributed supply chain that we have the capacity to move things around on a on a you know regular basis. And our team does that as part of doing business. That's just what they do. And then the third was, you know, if we can't mitigate it, then we'll we'll obviously pass through pricing. And our teams did an amazing job over the last eight months and actually put us in a position where the latest 25% really had a pretty nominal effect uh, from a pricing perspective that we had to pass through because they did such a good job of optimizing our supply chain. Is it more difficult, though, the longer this goes on? Well, my bigger worry is if we move to the next phase, the the concern is not necessarily for the impact on us at Cisco. Uh, my concern is more on the macro and what it does to customers' overall sentiment. Uh, that's the bigger concern for me. And what are you hearing from your customers at this point? Because I feel like now, if we listen to earnings calls, we listen to interviews with your peers, they're starting to think about it, talk about it in a little more meaningful way. Well, I, you know, I've heard, I hear the same things you're hearing. I mean, I, I heard we've we've seen some of the retail discussions that have happened over the last couple of weeks. So I think that the reality of companies' inability to optimize supply chain for whatever reasons or various reasons that they can't, I think, is becoming the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the impact on either the company or the consumer is is going to have a drag on the market if we don't you know do something. You've talked about diversifying your supply chain, and I'm assuming you've been doing that for some time. How much of your supply chain, though, Chuck, is still in China? Well, you know, we, we actually operate in over 10 different countries around the world. And and we, we don't go into specifics because on any given day, it could be any number. Uh, but we have, um, you know, suffice it to say that the, the amount that is coming into the U.S. is subject to tariffs is nominal because that's what we talked about at the end of the day. But we've been, our teams do this as part of their jobs. I mean, they do this on a regular basis based on risk mitigation, based on where our component suppliers, the the most cost-effective way to get the components into our supply chain. Uh, There's an element, obviously, of tax, and uh, all of those things come into play as we think about how we line up our supply chain. You talk about trade. We also think and talk a lot about Huawei. Mm -hmm. And one of the implications that everybody's wondering about is 5G. What impact does that have now? What impact does that have in the short term? How much do you worry that 5G deployment could really be derailed or slowed by all of these actions? 
you know, I, I actually don't worry about that. I think that uh, there are multiple suppliers around the world who provide macro radio technology. That's what we're talking about. And then once you get off the macro radio, I mean, we provide most all the technology in the core networks for our customers. And so I think there are plenty of alternatives, plenty of good alternatives out there. And uh, I think the bigger issue when you think about 5G and the deployments are the cost of capital mm. <laughs> to build out these networks, the cost to buy that, that our, our customers are having to face to buy spectrum, the, the regulatory environment. And, you know, what's the reality of uh, the business model that they can build to actually get the ROI on the investments they have to make to get there. I think those are the bigger things that we need to be talking about and working on. Well, and one thing I do want to also ask you is there's been a lot written that because of the ban on Huawei, that it presents or creates an incredible opportunity for the likes of you and others. I've seen a number of about $5 billion in terms of a global market. Do you see that ban on Huawei as an opportunity for Cisco? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say uh, because, you know, we, we focus on our innovation and working with our customers and our customers in the large telcos and the large carriers around the world, they all tend to have multi-vendor strategies to begin with. So it's very difficult to ascertain when they increase volume with one versus the other. And it, you know, what's the cause of that? And they, they typically don't, wouldn't tell us anyway, right? because they, uh, they, they wouldn't want to give us any negotiating power. Right? But, I, but I do think <laughs> about 5G. I mean, you know, this world so well mm-hmm. in terms of the potential for it. And if Huawei is locked out of that market, I mean, once you start to create these networks, and you are locked out as part of a piece of that supply chain, it's very hard to kind of change, right, over, you know, bring in a different supplier. So I do wonder about the longer this goes on, does it create more of an opportunity for you guys? Well, because th- Huawei is kind of pushed to the I side. I think there are, as the build whatever starts. the reasons are that a customer makes a franchise decision, because they, they do make franchise decisions. The big carriers have always done this. Uh, the large web scale providers, they make architectural franchise decisions. And then once you, if you don't get into those, and this happens to us as well, then you're you're basically waiting for the next architectural transition for you to have an entry point. And, you know, I've talked publicly about the fact that we missed a couple of early waves in the, in the web scale providers, and now we're having to work our way back in. Right. And I think that's just a fact of dealing in this space with these providers. So whether it's a security issue or whether it's a technology issue, if you if you miss a wave, then you're just going to have to wait for the next one. How long are those waves? Uh, usually they're, you know, somewhere five to 10 years. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're so big. you can be locked out for a while. Right. And, when you, we, and we feel it when it happens to us. Yeah. So. Right. And when you think about 5G, I feel like when we talk to folks like you, we're talking about a massive leap forward in terms of the types of services, the types of things that we as consumers and businesses will be able to do. Help us understand what 5G looks like in our everyday lives. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, think about where you are today and what you can do with your mobile device versus what you could do, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, we take it all for granted today, but I mean, the capabilities that we have in our pockets on these devices are just monumentally different. And this is no different. You're going to see a step change. And this one is probably exponentially Mm -hmm. even better than what we felt over the last decade or so. Uh, So when you talk about speeds of four, five, six, eight, ten times, I mean, the early use cases I think are going to be, you know, my 18-year-old son putting his phone in the middle of a table and having eight of his friends around and they're they're playing real-time gaming (laughs) as that's serving as a hotspot for them. But I mean, the reality is, is we're going to, we should be able to deliver real-time healthcare into rural areas in ways that we haven't been able to. Getting, 
getting speeds out into these environments because we can do it over spectrum as opposed to having to go pull fiber and run terrestrial circuits. Hopefully, it will change the economics for our carriers on a global basis, deliver education into rural parts of emerging countries. I mean, those are the kinds of applications in addition to IoT and all those things that uh, are out there. So lots of use cases. I love to know like timelines. So I'm curious what some of the telecom customers are telling you about 5G deployment in terms of when we see it, right? We've been talking about it for a while. I guess we're starting to see it. Yeah, we're starting to see trials around the U.S. in particular. We're seeing trials around the world. Uh, And it really, there's a lot of uh, Issues related to spectrum availability. So Europe's got spec; they have spectrum auctions going on. Right. Uh, and uh, so once you have spectrum, then they start to build out. But what we see is a lot of the trials are implementing 5G radio technology, and then they're taking advantage of their existing backbone networks. And so I think 2020 and beyond, as they see these trials turn into more production, and you see more the number of devices at the edge of the network increasing, then that's going to lead to the need to build more core infrastructure to support the capacity that's going to be needed to move so all the So we're state. still building out a lot in 2020. We're still very early. This yeah. is multi-year, multi-multi-year. So 5G, clearly a huge part of your strategy going forward. Let's talk a little bit more about the business broadly. Yeah. As you talk to your customers, news, headlines, worries aside, How are they feeling about their ability to spend, their ability to invest right now? You have such an amazing window into their sort of hopes and dreams. What are they telling you? Well, you know, what's really changed uh, in the world over the last 10, 15 years is the importance of technology. And with our customers, with, with business customers today or with governments around the world, I mean, our public sector business around the world has been incredibly strong. What is it? The reality for them is that technology is no longer some optional cost center. I mean, technology is now at the heart of the strategies that they're deploying, whether it's delivering citizen services in government or whether it's the way a bank interacts with their customers in the branch or how they think about the, the applications. But technology is in the middle of everything. So our, our customers don't I don't think they're at a point anymore where they say, oh, it's a little tough, so I think I'm going to slow my spending here. Because they, they, they think that if they do, then the competition is going to leverage technology to overtake them. Every company on the planet continues to think about a smaller company leveraging technology to disrupt them. So I think that – I mean, not, not saying that the tech industry is immune to a downturn by any stretch because we're all subject to that. I just think technology is playing a much different role today than it has in the past. That's Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins, a really timely interview. And, you know, he joked with us that he's been talking a lot about U.S.-China trade and Huawei specifically, but that has been front and center in terms of investors as we watch kind of these geopolitical tensions work out between the U.S. and the China specifically. Great to get his thoughts. It was great to have such a wide-ranging discussion. There's actually more to this Business Week Talks. Check it out via our podcast. We got into how he manages Cisco and even what he would be doing if he wasn't doing this job. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch us live? Then do check out our daily podcast for the ride home. You can find that at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. And get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.